Very passable, this risotto. Very passable. Nothing like a good glass of Chateau de Chasselier wine. Aye, Jolyon? Ah, uh, you're right there, Jolyon. Who'd have thought, 30 years ago, we'd all be sitting here doing political journalism? Aye, uh, in them days, we'd have been glad to have had the price of a cup of coffee. A cup of cold coffee. Without milk or sugar. And nay froth. Or coffee. In a filthy, cracked cup. A big working man's cup. Not one of those little dainty ones. We never used to have a cup. We used to have to drink our coffee out of a rolled-up newspaper. Worse still, it was a Daily Mail. The toxins in that. Coffee? Bit middle class for me, lads. The best we could manage was to suck the toxins out of a piece of damp cloth. But you know, we were happy in those days. Though we were poor. Aye, because we were poor. My old dad used to say to me, money don't buy your happiness. He was right. I was happier then and I had nothing. We used to live in this tiny old house. Tiny it was. He could only fit the five of us and my lodger and the cook and the maid and my nanny and my lion tamer in there. Took me die years to pay off the mortgage. House? You were lucky to have a house? We used to live a hundred floors up in a ghastly high-rise with only the opulent splendour of our penthouse suite to make that bitter pill an easier one to swallow. You were lucky to have a penthouse suite. The rent of my father's modest 26-bedroom manor was so steep he could barely afford to pay for my public school education. Oh, we used to dream of getting a public school education. I had to earn my educational stripes in an old water tank on a rubbish tip. Or at least, that was what we called my local comprehensive. Well, when I say public school, it were only a series of makeshift huts, at least while they renovated the main buildings to add in some state-of-the-art IT equipment and the like. Aye, aye. I too had a modest education at my local comp, but they kicked me out when we moved out of the catchment area to another manor. Me parents didn't send me to Eton out of choice, you know. You were lucky to have a school. A home school from the womb right up until I turned 18, when my father marched me into the Daily Mail and General Trust head office and demanded they make me Deputy Eugenics Editor. Deputy Eugenics Editor? Aye, principal leftist that I am. You were lucky. I did ten years hard graft on the Guido Fawkes underage leftist Facebook trolling desk. Searching the names, verifying that they're underage, downloading their pictures, masturbating over their pictures, publishing their pictures with a witty rejoinder attached, masturbating over the witty rejoinder. With nary a promotion in sight, that is, until I got hired as social media correspondent by The Guardian. Luxury. We had to roll out of bed at five in the morning, have a big bump of cocaine, have a swig of whiskey and some cocaine to take the edge off. Go to work, Fleet Street, every day for a mere £105,000 a year. Get hacking phones before I'd even had me secondary hit of cocaine in the morning. Transcribe the voicemails, masturbate over the voicemails, treat myself to a brief cocaine lunch. Head off to Downing Street for t- rest of today to do comms for the t- Prime Minister. Go back to office by dusk, hack some more phones, bribe some police officers, and then finally masturbate and or fall asleep, cocaine permitting. 
Oh, we had it tough. We used to have to get into Daily Mail offices as soon as our workday was officially scheduled to start. Get called a cunt by Mr. Dacre from the minute we stepped through the door until so soon as we started to cry. And then lick Mr. Dacre's arsehole clean with our own tongues. We had no choice. We wanted to be journalists. What's more, the senior eugenics editor and phrenology correspondent were art bullies. And when Mr. Dacre would take pity on me and stop calling me a cunt for five seconds, then slash me in two with a bread knife. And what did I get in return? Nothing. Bar being made editor of the Times. Right. I had to get up in the morning at ten o'clock at night, gulp down a pint of cocaine, pen a cover story that would make the BMP blush before I'd even allow myself a yawn, keep me chauffeur waiting so long while I hacked voicemails in bed that he died of old age in me drive, make him drive me to work anyway once I was quite bloody ready, stop on Tutway to take a shit on a Labour MP's doorstep, hack their phone, get into the office, go on Guido Fawkes, report their latest story as a major scoop of me own, go back on Guido Fawkes to do some research on eugenics, find all the lower ranking journalists in the office and call them a bunch of cunts, masturbate over the act of calling them a bunch of cunts, vape some cocaine, bribe a police officer for some more cocaine, and just as I were leaving to office, pass Paul Dacre in the lobby and get called a cunt. Will you try and tell Owen Jones that today? And he won't believe you. No. Opposing the government. You have fields. And opposing the Conservatives. Cows that move backwards and forwards. I'm afraid it's the hard left. And you have the milk. Who want to tighten their control. That is taken from cows in the south. They want to uh, sideline uh, moderate voices. And taken from cows in the north. I don't think anybody should be surprised about that is the nature of the hard left. Put together in the same factory. And of course we know that the hard left famously cannot tolerate any who dissent. Who are the hard left, Well we know who the hard left are. And then it is mixed together with whiskey or in the you know uh, ascendancy I, within the within the labor party who associate with the hard left and it comes out as milk you just said that we were right to right wing cows in the fields milk in the shops the hard left agenda the state controls the price of milk printing money that is what socialism does nationalization without compensation Hard left wing position. Hard well, left, hard left, the 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 hard Right, I've got a big stack of books next to me. I've got <laughs> I've got Alistair Campbell diaries, the Blair years. Oh God. I've got I've got Authentocrats. I've got nineteen ninety seven The Future That Never Happened by Richard Power Saeed. I've got oh, Chavs. Yeah. Chavs by our close friend oh, Ocean. Broken Vows, Tony Blair and the Tragedy of Power. And uh, that, admittedly, I, I couldn't find anything relevant in that one. It was just kind of decorative. Um, <laughs> but I've, I have got Andrew Rawnsley's The End of the Party as well. So I've got a whole, whole wealth of literature to have on the desk next to me and, and not touch. Just going to come out and say I have not read a 
single one of those books, so I am looking forward to reading Authentic Rats. I've got like two chapters into Authentic Rats, it's pretty good so far. I really like it. Yeah, it's a really good book. I, f- I finished it last night, and like the last chapters, uh, like the last one is, is a good, level headed, honest look at the sort of challenges, contradictions that Corbynism faces. Mm-hmm. And um, I think the chapter just before that is called The Dialectics of Banter. Nice! <laughs> I was in a bookshop today, and they had a copy of uh, 1997 by Richard Power Seed, so I picked that up for mm-hmm. three quid. Oh. So I, I had a little read of the Cocaine Supernova chapter, which I thought would be quite useful for. Uh, what today. today yes yeah oh that okay. is that is the most yeah. relevant chapter um to to what we're talking about <laughs> blur are not lads liam later declared oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> pearl jam are not lads suede are not lads how many haircuts you got there for <laughs> rather than lads blur were southern puffs dear me yeah, I'm just, yeah, I've got, I've got up to the part where they just talk about Oasis's release of Be Here Now and stuff, and that's about as far as we got from that chapter. So. Oh, what a critical moment in 1997. <laughs> <laughs> it truly was. I think what it better... came out, I hate to say I remember this, but I'm pretty sure it came out in like July 97. It was definitely in the summer months. Because I know, do you know what I mean, was out before I started secondary school. That's got that crazy video, which must have cost so much, where there's like, they're in a helicopter and, and all that stuff. Um, all it... the videos from that album were fucking abysmal. <laughs> <laughs> there's the All Around the World one, which is supposed to look like the Yellow the, Submarine movie. The worst Beatles rip-off video of all time. <laughs> Anyway, um, <laughs> let's keep our powder dry and start the episode proper. Um, I do like how we're starting season four by antagonising our listeners by talking about Oasis and Britpop. That's a, that's a oh, big, totally. It's a big gamble. James, the greatest Britpop band. Who are you? Sorry, James. James. I agree. I agree. Oh my god, James. I agree. Yeah. Yes. Interesting. That, well, that one, that one song "Laid" is actually better than everything Oasis have ever done, and I will say that on record. I will sit go down. down <laughs> that Wonderwall wishes it could be. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Be here now was released on the twenty-first of August. Oh but... wow! So it was literally like a couple of weeks before I went to secondary school. I knew mm. it came out in the summer, but I couldn't remember exactly when because I know that all around the world came out in around December 97 or January 98 because mm. very funny anecdote well it's funny to me anyway I went to see Titanic in the cinema in its original run and when I came out I was standing at the bus stop waiting for the bus and somebody was singing like you know the line in the second verse to all around the world where it goes if you're lost at sea well I hope that you I hope that you fall. drown it's a bit harsh <laughs> given what I could watch but you know <laughs> <laughs> after watching people drown but <laughs> like, that's always kind of stayed in my memory also, also it's just a terrible 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 fucking song <laughs> so oh it's this again oh no <laughs> hi everyone you're, you're listening to the real politic podcast i am jack frayne reed i am joined today by tom foster Thank you very much. Laura Jollian Tid. Wow, thank you. <laughs> and none other than our most frequent guest, our Islington correspondent, our 
seeing off seeing off the toads on Twitter <laughs> correspondent. None other than Jude Wanger. The data has logged on. Yes, <laughs> something like your sixth or seventh appearance on the show, Jude, I, I, I think, and uh, I'm sure it will be the best yet. That's um, quite a record of appearances. It's like you've got Stockholm Syndrome. Are you not sick of me yet? <laughs> no, no, no. You never No, you're always welcome back. Yeah. I have been drinking all day. So <laughs> I don't know how this is going to go. <laughs> But furthermore, I would like to apologise to our listeners, first of all, for, for the fact that we have been off the air for so long. I know it's been hard to cope without us. I know that because we weren't making any episodes, Labour didn't do as well in the local elections as they otherwise might have done. So I'm sorry about that. I'm sorry that we forgot to rally the troops in time for the locals. And uh, I would also like to apologise for the fact that the opening song to this episode was not in fact a Britpop song that suits the theme of this episode, but rather Glenn Campbell's version of Milk Cow Blues, which was uh, (laughs) chosen around a month in advance of recording so that I could mash it up with some clips of Mike Gapes' infamous milk speech. So (laughs) that's our introduction. Before we let Jude launch into her grand thesis, <laughs> um, <laughs> for a I, I will. I will contain my uh, my, my my rage at cer- certain things you say. Things. It will be great. Is there anything we've missed in the time we've been off the air that you guys would like to shout out? Ooh. Just would like to say a hearty goodbye and good riddance to Heidi Alexander, who decided to give up the ghost of pretending to be an MP and become a full-time member of the crazy train at City Hall. Labour's loss is London's loss. (laughs) I'd just like to take this opportunity to thank our um, illustrious mayor, Sadiq Khan, for his wonderful melt job creation scheme that he's got going at City Hall. And hopefully he will continue to gainfully employ numerous other people who are currently non-gainfully employed within the Parliamentary Labour Party. Keep up the good work, Sadiq. Hopefully it doesn't affect your housing policy too much, having these fucking melts running amok on it. I just think it's just so kind and selfless of him to look around the Labour Party, see so many, you know, untapped talent, (laughs) and think, let me hoover all of these people up. (laughs) Give them a home. It's like comic relief times children in need times the Labour Party equals <laughs> He really missed a trick by letting Michael Duggar go off to run the entire British music industry. <laughs> Michael Duggar should be in charge of, like, London's curry policy or something. But having said that, that sounds like the kind of thing that, like, Paul Joseph Watson would get incredibly worked up about. Peter Sweden, you have something to say about that. <laughs> The thing about Duggar running the music industry is that he looks like the kind of man that only owns four records, and one of them is the best of Chaz and Dave. (laughs) (laughs) The other three are Shed (laughs) 7. Plus a Drenge CD single. 
Honestly, like his four records, the best of Chaz and Dave, the first Shed Seven album, like <laughs> definitely maybe. Oh, he's, he's, he's clearly a What's the Story Morning Glory. Yeah, exactly. It would be Morning um, Glory, I think. Yeah, and I don't know, Dream. Uh, whatever the dream album was that had things can only get better on it those are his four albums (laughs) he bought the dream album and was bitterly disappointed to find out that brian cox wasn't in the band when they recorded it (laughs) i recently discovered that he wasn't dream i was like what I was watching something where Eric Idle from Monty Python was, uh, and, and then in fact, shout out to our opening sketch for this episode that we recorded last week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Jude, you'll be in for a treat when you hear that. For the Four Yorkshiremen, Owen Jones version. Well, British commentariat version. But oh, wow. uh, basically, I was watching Eric Idle, and because he's like the showbiz member of Monty Python, like the one who went off to Hollywood and tried to become a film star and failed at becoming a film star. Hey, 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 hey. Do not besmirch Eric Idol's film career. Splitting airs. It's not not all been dreadful. The Ruttles 2. The Ruttles 2 is one of the worst films I've ever seen. No, The Ruttles is brilliant. The Ruttles 2 is a travesty. Wasn't he in the... What was the name of it? Burn Hollywood Burn. An Alan Smithy film, Burn Hollywood Burn. Where he An Alan, Alan Smithy Smith. film, yeah. He's been in a lot of shit, mate. Let's just put it that <laughs> Yeah, way. and I mean, Alan Smithy is obviously the pseudonym that directors use when they don't want their name attached to a film. And the thing with the Alan Smithy film is it's about a director who I think the character played by Eric Idle is actually called Alan Smithy. And yeah. in the film... I haven't actually seen it, but I'm pretty sure the plot is that he tries to get his name removed from a bad film. Now, in real life, the director of Burn Hollywood Burn had his name removed from the film. So it is directed by Alan Smithy. But no, basically... He was in The Wind in the Willows, which was actually not not terrible. Directed by the boy Terry Jones, though. So, you know, Terry Jones, the real heart and soul of the Python team. (laughs) <laughs> I'm not. I'm not gonna do. There's no Terry saying does. much. <laughs> <laughs> I, Both of them were fucking pricks, to be fair. So, Michael Palin's nice, famously so. Wow. Oh, oh my god. Well, wow. wow. nice. Do you have a controversial opinion about how Michael Palin isn't nice? I just think he's a lot slightly overrated. <laughs> the controversy what? beginning early on. But that's before, <laughs> no, we, even, that's before we even get into o- Oasis. Yeah, we <laughs> haven't even started on the Britpop stuff. Anyway, I, know I was. That I'm really going to regret asking this, but who is Michael Palin? <laughs> the guy who does the BBC documentary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he does the, the travel, travel documentaries. Yeah. Oh. Not he, the train play- ones, that's Michael Peter. Not the train ones. <laughs> that's that's he did do a train one at one point. That was, what, that was what he did, but made the BBC hire him to do the travel ones. But also, he plays Molotov in The Death of Stalin, which is his first comic role for a while, and uh, he's really funny in it. You know, um, I was really high when I watched that film, and I can't remember much about it, apart from getting really angry and pushing the laptop off the bed. So. <laughs> It wasn't even my laptop. I was just really angry. <laughs> that, that's great. <laughs> it's um, it's a bit anti-Stalin. 
Oh, I've seen a take. Sorry, a shout out to the Delete Your Account podcast. No, fuck, it was Discourse Collective with one of the Delete Your Account guys on it. But they said that they thought, you know, some of them disputed this, but one of them said they thought it was a kind of pro-Khrushchev film, which, uh, but, but I'd say only within the kind of conniving liberal political paradigm that Iannucci's satire exists within. So it was kind of saying Khrushchev was like a smarter operator than the others and more of a canny politician. But I, yeah, I wouldn't wouldn't necessarily actually interpret it as pro-Christian. Anyway, sorry, my point was just basically that Eric Idle, because he didn't really have a massive success outside of Monty Python until Spamalot, which is just him ripping off Monty Python, although I've heard it's quite good. I haven't actually seen it. He always boasts about his celebrity friends and stuff, and he's always just like, well, you know, I was having dinner with Brian Cox the other night and stuff, and it's like... Bet you're a melt and all. Like, basically, all the Pythons did stuff for the Amnesty International secret policeman's ball benefits in the 70s and 80s, apart from Eric Idle. And as I tweeted the other day, I'm choosing to interpret this as that Eric Idle is opposed to human rights. <laughs> what? <laughs> I actually think that's a less controversial statement than Michael Palin isn't nice, but (laughs) horses for cool. You tried to milkshake Duck Eric Idol for me live on the podcast. I'm trying to milkshake Duck you for your controversial opinions on Michael Palin. (laughs) Wow, I have tasted my own medicine and it is bitter. Right, I briefly wanted to say, obviously, happy birthday, Karl Marx. Happy birthday, Uh, Happy birthday, Dad. Happy birthday, Uncle Carl. Dare I say it, the absolute boy. And uh, furthermore, for the day after Marx's birthday, happy birthday, Robespierre. Robespierre, yeah. Another absolute boy. The terror, that was late Robespierre. Like, he he, he did some very good stuff. All in all, (laughs) it's been a bad week for the bourgeoisie. There's been <laughs> celebrations left, right, and centre, and it feels only right that, that this celebratory mood should spur real politics back into existence. Hell yeah. I live like maybe an eight minute walk from Karl Marx. Aww. Hey. Yeah, he's just up the road. It's like Tom with Enoch Powell. <laughs> Wait, wait, what? Wait, what? Yeah, okay, so basically, uh, Enoch, Enoch, Enoch Powell is, is, is buried about 10 minutes away from me in Warwick Cemetery, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he, was be- he, was be- he was buried there because uh, he was in the Royal Warwickshire Regiment and he wanted to be buried oh, where the... Yeah, it's fucking bullshit. Jack wanted to go see his grave when he came and visited me, so that's oh, what I'm going to say. I've, I've never oh, been yeah. to his grave. I've never had uh, any interest uh, in... Tom, Tom, can we rephrase that? I didn't want to go and see his grave. <laughs> you want, you wanted, wanted to have to have a quiet reflection on his legacy. On his grave. <laughs> <laughs> I, want, I wanted to blast out Kanye hey, West's my respect. collaboration. Piss on your grave. I'll piss in your grave. And <laughs> miss the old Kanye. But the Kanye of like two years ago. Oh, That's yeah. I, I didn't want a, a pilgrimage. Outrageous slander. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy, but yeah, he's he's buried in Warwick Cemetery, and uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. 
very sad and tragic. <laughs> you think you know a guy? <laughs> I can't believe Jack's uh, trying to go on a pilgrimage to his grave. This I had to forcibly hold him back. <laughs> this <laughs> is more fake news from the failing Real Politic podcast. <laughs> very sad and tragic. <laughs> He was like, he was like Tom Tom I just want to have a quiet reflection. Like... I just want to go and read Virgil on his grave. <laughs> Tell him he was right. Oh fucking hell! Well, that's a, that's actually a thing we miss doing an episode on, isn't it? Enoch Powell. They aired the entirety of the Rivers of Blood speech, um, read by an actor who loves Enoch Powell on ra- on Radio Four. Oh god. <laughs> But it's it's okay because both sides got to critique it. So somebody got to say, oh, this speech is bad. It's racist. People were fucking killed in the streets as a result of it. And someone else got to say, no, actually, he was right. It's not racist. And the black man is going to hold the whip hand over the white man and the streets are going to flow with rivers and blood. So it actually, you know, they had a balanced discussion. They had a proper open debate. And it's all sorted now. We've aired the debate out. And it's like when Nick Griffin went on Question Time. Fascism's over. <laughs> Jesus. I'm so glad we all pay a licence fee to the BBC. <laughs> I'm so glad uh, I literally fund fascism. I don't actually pay a licence fee. Don't yeah. tell anyone that. As far as everyone is aware, I do fund fascism. <laughs> And we have to stick with that line or else I go to prison. Weird country, great country. I'm a big fan. <laughs> Whose grave are you going to go and pay a pilgrimage to, Laura? Where's Raoul Moat buried? <laughs> Careful, you're going to get a part of your Wikipedia page saying support Raoul Moat. Yeah. <laughs> Like she she turned up to the great Laura turned up to the grave of Raoul Moat with a Raoul Moat mask and just uh, did a performative dance <laughs> piece around. More like he's misunderstood. <laughs> Let's have a sit down. <laughs> the only cemetery I think I've ever pilgrimage. Well, it's not pilgrimage. I always stay in the same area of Paris every time I go because it's all where all the immigrants are, and it's away from all the tourists, so it's perfect. Because mm. I really hate French people. <laughs> yeah, it... as, uh, President Macron, I am mortally offended by these uh, offensive words. <laughs> <laughs> so I always say I stay in the twentieth, and it's literally like a two-minute walk to Père Lachaise Cemetery. And so I just walk through on my way to lunch or something, and I go and hang out with Proust or oh, Jim Morrison. I thought you were going to say Jim Morrison because he's buried. Well, in yeah, loads of people are buried there. Oscar Wilde's in there, Molière's in there, oh, Edith Piaf's in there. Okay. Yeah, it's quite good. The Balzac's in there. So I think we should talk about people's graves. I wish I was dead. <laughs> <laughs> I'll pay a pilgrimage to your grave, Laura. Don't worry. I forgot that that came out wrong. I was supposed to say people I wish I wish was dead and it was going to be. <laughs> no, no, we'd have to bury Laura somewhere she'd really, really hate, like Sunderland's stadium. <laughs> <laughs> we'd have buried you in the stadium of life. <laughs> I promise, Laura, I'll only piss on your grave if it's in Sunderland. <laughs> 
It's what she'd want. It's what she'd want. <laughs> uh, in one of in one of the Pennywell cemeteries, where Barry Laura. And... <laughs> yes. Jude, were you happy that Sunderland went down to oh, League I'm One? Oh, fucking delighted. <laughs> who isn't? Who isn't apart from a voter? Oh, I'm oh. loving it. So, guys, I suggest we move on to uh, <laughs> yeah. our, our, the issue at hand. Wow. I could sense Jack why was getting a bit why like. We, why can't we talk football? It's all right, look. It's, it's all right, Why Jude. can't we're, I we're skew gonna... my vile hatred for Sunderland <laughs> over this <laughs> pod? Why am you I being censored? I, 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 I didn't interrupt Laura at all when she was spewing hate about sending Sunderland next. I'm not finished. <laughs> I'm going to let you finish, Laura. No, I'm going to no. let you finish. I'm, but Oasis had three of the best albums of all time, yo. Gosh. Uh, Oasis right. don't even three. have an entire album's worth of good songs, let alone three be good albums. Be here now, bang! Be here now is bad, okay? Even Noel Gallagher doesn't think that. Noel's wrong. Noel just listened to the the, 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 the arsehole music critics and was like, yeah, 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 these guys are right. And and, and, and he let down the rest of Oasis, who, who made a great record. Liam's vocals on that record, top of the range. This is revisionism. (laughs) (laughs) I am rewriting history. We will have an episode dedicated to football. We want to bring you back on for the United Passions episode, Jude, if you're up for that. We're going to talk about that, and I'm sure it'll be a good recording session. But we'll do that. We were trying to do that at the end of last season, but we didn't get a chance to. I don't want to start making drunken demands, but I demand the football episodes. We will we will have the football episode. We'll do United Passions. We'll, we'll, talk we'll about do how, it. Yeah, I want you to go on a rant about Chelsea and how it's a horrible <laughs> racist club. Oh wow, where do I start? <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. right. Let me crack open the book. Dude, dude. I'm gonna let you finish in a future episode but until that time i think we need to move on to your theory about uh, certain cultural political changes that have happened in this country within the last couple of decades so this goes back to 21 years ago in 1997 let's take ourselves actually, back to actually jack it goes back <laughs> decades if we're going to do this we should do this properly yes i strongly believe that England's problems began with the foundation of the Beatles. <laughs> okay, yeah. well, that is that, that you. you hear me I, out. I, I'll, I'll hear, all right, all right, I'll hear you out. Right? The Beatles were a fucking terrible band. Let me Factual. Very few good songs, except for those written by George Harrison, who was an anomaly. Revisionism. Revisionism. Call a spade a spade. Right? So they take a load of drums, they rip off a load of bullshit. Poor man's Rolling Stones, let's just do it that way. I prefer the Stones. I, I do I do prefer the Stones. What they happened to do was bring into the world an evil that we did not know at the time would be uncontrollable. <laughs> the Beatles are responsible for the creation of Oasis. <laughs> and Oasis are responsible for Brexit. Now, <laughs> it's just a long-running thread, isn't it? It's a thread that I, runs I through history. Say, 
That's nonsense. How can that be? Well, I will tell you. Well, Jude, but what do you say to a friend of the show, Juliet Jakes, who said in an interview with me in New Socialist magazine, which I highly recommend you read, that um, you can't hold the Beatles responsible for Oasis. The influence. Oh, Oh, you can. Okay. Juliet, I hope you're listening. If the Beatles don't record Sgt. Pepper's, then. Oasis never record be here now. So Um, if you think about it, fixing in a hole is directly responsible for all around the world. (laughs) (laughs) Follow the thread. And it goes via a lot of bullshit songs as well. I also feel like the Beatles are responsible for Shaking Stevens. But that's a whole other (laughs) (laughs) I mean the Beatles are responsible for like quite a lot of music though, to be fair. The Beatles are responsible for Paul Young. Paul, yeah I, yeah, I don't know much about Paul Young. I just had to think about... good. Okay. In the 80s, he covered Hall and Oates and, like, just ruined it. This leads me to the first extract that I, I want to read, which I think is a nice kind of preamble. And yes, although, as Jude says, this possibly goes back a lot further than 1997 and indeed if we're taking a truly a dialectical standpoint of course the interaction of ideas happens through the ages rather than in just one kind of uh, concentrated piece of time but this scene from may 1997 is from the in first the words cap- of Columbo, just one more thing before okay one more that. thing if you think about it right <laughs> really think about it What was happening when the Beatles came out? It was the rise of the National Front. That's all I'm saying. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my word. (laughs) Okay. Can't argue with that. Well, (laughs) this is from the first chapter of Richard Power Said's book, 1997, The Future That Never Happened, and the introduction is called You Say You Want a Revolution. So... White Album was released the same year as the Rivers of Blood speech. I'm just putting these things up. That, that... Connect the dots. Connect the, the dots. Connect the dots. Connect the dots. <laughs> Noel Gallagher was celebrating Labour's election victory with his girlfriend, Meg Matthews, at their home in the fashionable North London suburb of Primrose Hill. He would recall how, that night in May 1997, it was all champagne, brandy and cigars around our house. Meg and me got pissed and went out into the garden and played Revolution, dead loud. The Beatles song that they chose had been written in the midst of worldwide protests and strikes, the events of 1968, when many of John Lennon's generation had been sacrificing their safety and reputations in the hope of building a better world. This icon of 1960s pop counterculture had responded by singing, You can count me out. His lyrics also decried revolutionary destruction and hate, which is very, like, liberal, isn't it? Like, I'm against hate. It's like, well, I hate Nazis. I'm against that, actually. But also dismiss changing the institution or indeed the constitution. His proposal was different and more focused on the self. You better free your mind instead. As the Beatles track rang out from Matthews and Gallagher's hi-fi, Lennon's words mocking the utopian dreams of the 68ers, 
Tony Blair was being driven from his parliamentary constituency in County Durham to London. Can I just say how delighted I am to be here? Where he would begin implementing a new kind of Labour politics, one that prized individual aspiration over class struggle. So that's the scene in May 1997, this kind of a hopeful moment for many people around the country. I think Laura's dropped out. It's all right, carry on. But I guess a left politics, a nominally left politics, that had been stripped of a lot of what made it distinctive and a lot of what made it genuinely transformative. And so you have you have Revolution by the Beatles as a sort of anthem of this era, which is kind of a very, very cynical look at the actual ability to change the world and even the desire to do so. It's a bad song, though. I think it's bad lyrically. I think I think it's think quite... about it. Revolution is a very centrist, melty song. It is. It absolutely is. Right. Which just furthers my theory that the Beatles and Oasis did Brexit. To think back to another reactionary Beatles song, how does Taxman square with your contention that George was the good Beatle? He was on drugs. <laughs> but dude. So are we. He was on hard drugs. Sorry, I should have clarified. <laughs> but I mean, surely the main drug that he was on was uh, was wealth and, 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 and feeling an entitlement to it. He was on a lot of shrooms and also he was being bullied by the racist John Lennon. I'm not disputing it at all, but for our listeners, what grounds are you describing John Lennon as racist on? All of the grounds. <laughs> Is this just woman is the end of the world or? Well, there is that because I really just thought, how do you, a white man married to an Asian woman, write woman is the nigger of the world? Because last time I checked, the nigger was the nigger of the world. But also Imagine has to be the most white savior song ever committed to audio. And if you look at the lyrics for all of his supposedly hippie, mm. progressive nonsense, it's all just kind of like, well, we could have this. But, you know, whoa, 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 whoa. Maybe let's just slow it down, which is just melt shit, which is basically just like just <laughs> smiley, happy, authentic crap fascism. So, yeah. <laughs> Hang on, just messaging Laura. She says her internet's cut out. Her internet couldn't handle my truth. <laughs> I, just, I, tr I try and add it back in. Just too many hashtag facts. Hello? Laura. Is it back? Yep, we're back. Your, yeah. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> Your internet is trying to hide you from the truth about the Beatles. <laughs> this is a legit conspiracy now. <laughs> now, Jude, you just mentioned authentocracy, which is the subject of the new book by Joe Kennedy, who will hopefully be doing a show on that topic with soon. I've just finished reading it last night. Laura's been reading the book. Does anybody have any thoughts on authentocracy and how the likes of Oasis play into it? I think bands like Oasis were kind of utilised by the centrists as almost a shield behind their kind of authoritarian push, like a working class shield. Mm. And what they had was this ready-built kind of culture phenomena that was happening at the time. And they took the working class who were most likely to identify with the culture of aspiration and aspiration yeah. politics, and mm. they pushed them front and centre. And I think nobody really personifies that more than Noel Gallagher. I think Noel, Noel yeah. Gallagher yeah. was somebody mm. who was working class, but I think probably felt slightly angry about being working class. 
and, yeah. and always had aspirations to move beyond that whilst trying to keep some of the authenticity of being working class. And so he was perfect for the Labour Party. Yeah. Well, that's the difference between the middle classes and the working classes. The, the middle classes experiment with drugs, the working class just gets stuck in. Like, <laughs> and I think Liam is similar to a certain extent. I don't think he's as pretentious as Noel, and so he's probably not sold out as far along down, but he was also very much of that mould of being very taken in by the politics of aspiration. And, you know, I think had they not been northerners, they probably mm. they would have been the working class of the South who kind of got enticed by Margaret Thatcher, by Tillet and all of that mm. stuff about aspiring to be in the middle class, because that was a very potent and very seductive politics to sell to the working class in the 80s, where there was high unemployment and people weren't able to feed their kids and jobs were scarce and houses were not very good. And a lot of people tapped into that. A lot of people, a lot of the working class bought, bought into that. And we see that today still with things like blue labour. We yeah. know that that kind of mm. process is very seductive to certain elements of the working class. And I think that's what Blairism did. They found their working class human shield to push through a load of regressive stuff under the guise of helping out the working class. And it paid off because everybody bought into it and nobody wanted to scratch the service to see what was actually being sold to them. And you put mashed potato over something and you tell them it's shepherd's pie, but it's actually just shit. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're right that it's almost a Thatcherite vision of the working class. It's an aspirational vision from the kind of right to buy school. But also it's an incredibly white and male vision of the working class grounded in this defanged version of what the uh, old trade union left was seen as being. You can still kind of see it in people like Blue Labour and the kind of bloke labour elements that exist of this kind of masculine laborist culture. Except the thing was that New Labour wasn't going to give the trade unions any help. So they wanted to have that kind of superficial image of the working class. And they combined that with this kind of masculine attitude, which you could see in stuff like Liam Gallagher saying that blur aren't lads. Pearl Jam yeah, aren't lads. Yeah. You know, blur are southern puffs. And also kind of elements of, again, everything slightly defanged, but elements of nationalism, as best yeah. indicated by Noel Gallagher's Union Jack guitar or the Union Jack hanging in Oasis's rehearsal studio in the early 90s. Yeah. So Oasis were undoubtedly a working class band, the product of Thatcherite deprivation. But even as somebody who quite likes a lot of their music, you'd be hard pressed to claim that there is anything particularly radical about them, both formally and in terms of the kind of messages they gave out. Yeah, and I do, I do really agree with Jude here. What you say about Noel Gallagher being the pinnacle of everything that New Labour wanted to latch onto and hide behind. Yeah. And he, 1994, when this whole thing started building up, they must have felt like they'd hit a fucking gold mine when they stumbled across Noel Gallagher because he is sort of, he, he personifies that that sort of like blokey, working class, authenticrat image that they so desperately needed to hide mm. neoliberal, essentially repackaged Thatcherite policy behind. He was exactly the sort of person that could sell it, that could make it cool, that could make it part of that whole working class aspirational dream kind of politic. Yeah, and that's, I think... That's what he did. Yeah, I mean, if you look at what Noel Gallagher did in like his early years when they did start getting the money like when you buy a house in London and you call it Supernova Heights that <laughs> statement 
Yeah. (laughs) And obviously nobody begrudges him doing any of that because you know when you're when you grow up poor, when you grow up walking working class, you dream about being able to do that kind of stuff. But I always think of it as like there's two kinds of dreaming when you're working class as growing up as a kid. There's like the dream of having money, but then there's also the dream of being from money. Mm. From Mm. making sense. There's having money and being financially secure and then there's wanting to be middle class. And yes. I feel like with Noel, I think he always wanted to be middle class. Like yeah. deep, deep down, he always wanted to kind of transcend the working class and not be confined by or defined by the working class. In the film Supersonic, like you really get the sense from him that he has such a massive chip on his shoulder about his background. Like every interview they do with him and with the mum and with the other brother and with Liam, you get a sense of resentment so much more from him than you do from any of the other lads. I think another reason that Noel is particularly emblematic of this kind of working class with the edges sanded down is because he's less of a loose cannon than Liam. The way he conducts Mm. himself is essentially a lot more of what you'd stereotypically think as like how a middle-class person would behave. He's just not quite as boisterous. And despite the fact that they're both kind of, you know, not meaning this disparagingly at all, both kind of uneducated, Noel comes off as more kind of eloquent so he can slot a lot easier into the kind of milieu where he turns up at number 10 to meet Tony Blair and reading the Alistair Campbell diaries it is interesting to see they were not into the idea of having Tony Blair meet Liam at all Um, Mm. Alistair Campbell was advised to keep Liam away from Tony and he wasn't invited to number 10 whereas Noel obviously Blair thought this is a guy I can do business with. (laughs) But I mean, if you think about it, Noel had some really dodgy comments on working class artists anyway. Like Mm. I think there was, I think it was a couple of years ago, maybe it was last year. I can't remember when it was. No, it was a couple of years ago. I think it was when another Labour belt, Chris Bryan, rather fairly actually made the point that there were too many posh people in music. Mm. Um, And it's because the music industry had just come off this wave of middle class, upper class, pop, acts coming through like Ed Sheeran mm-hmm. and Eddie Colding yeah. and all of those and Noel I think he was interviewed about and asked about it and he, I think he said initially that like with the recession the working class fans aren't coming through because they don't have the contact but mm-hmm. he also went on to make a comment which was something like working class people don't have much of a presence in music magazines and the music industry and the ones that do aren't very clever I think actually, <laughs> I think what he said was that the working class people that are in the music industry are just idiots <laughs> And again, you've got to think about what is Noel's vision of the working class. Because to be fair, calling Cleaford Mods idiots is probably not the worst thing anyone has ever said about the <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But I feel like it betrays something about Noel, which goes back to the aspiration thing, where he thinks because people make a certain kind of working class music that he can't understand or he doesn't tap into, that it Mm. makes it inauthentic to him. Do you think he's referring to the so-called white working class? Or do you think, because I'm thinking in relation of comments like, I'm sure he's backtracked a bit from, but like in 2008 when he said there's no place for Jay-Z at Glastonbury, do you think he's talking about inner city black musicians maybe uh, and thinking they're a bit thick? Because... You know, some of his dog whistly comments in the past make me slightly suspicious. Well, I think he's definitely one of those kind of you've got to watch with one eye on those kind of things. Mates with Morrissey as well. Well, my favourite Oasis tidbit is that when they split up, 
it was the night before Reading, I believe. Noel had been slagging off Block Party, mm. Um, mm. who went to my uni, King's College, London, alumni. Hello. Oh, okay. And yeah, he'd been like slagging them off and he'd said like a load of awful shit about Kelly and then obviously they broke up quite suddenly and <laughs> they were replaced by Block Party and Kelly had the pleasure of announcing to everybody <laughs> up, which I feel like is quite nice comic revenge by the gods there but, um, <laughs> yeah, definitely. But I do feel like Noel has a problem with the shift in culture I think he is very much like Morrissey in that way he's just not quite as outspoken about it because he's a lot he's younger than Morrissey but I think if he'd been 20 years older, he definitely would have been spouting the same bollocks, maybe just not with all the vegan nonsense in it as well. Yeah, um, he, actually, he actually did make a very Morrissey-ish comment recently, which was that, I think it was after the Manchester attack, which obviously um, he became kind of um, associated... Wait, that, uh, saying he was associated with sounds like he was accused of, uh, of being responsible <laughs> for the Manchester attack. I am not accusing Noel Gallagher of terrorism, but because don't look oh, back yeah. in anger... <laughs> <laughs> because Don't Look Back in Anger became a kind He's of... He's an aural terrorist. He terrorises your ears. <laughs> um, but basically, he said something like that politicians in Britain, referring to both May and Corbyn, had been scared to stand up to terrorism for fear of being called racist, which is extremely, I've just been hanging out with Morrissey, yeah. <laughs> a kind of thing to say. Uh, you, you know, he wants Theresa May to be more racist. I think with Noel, it's a question of somebody who is desperately trying to get away from a path that he's not particularly proud of and i don't think he's not proud of it in terms of he's not proud of where he comes from or his family or anything like that i think he's so hates the connotations of what it means to be white working class or maybe just northern white working class because mm-hmm. if you think about it when he was growing up when he was 10 11 12 you know in his teenage years it wasn't a great time to be northern and working class because like things have changed now all bent on like decimating the north mm. um and i think for him blairism and centrism and that kind of authentocracy represented an opportunity to go from being looked down upon to being part of the system basically mm-hmm. And I think he's always wanted to be part of the system rather than outside being looked down upon. Yeah. I feel like if you said to Liam, you're a poor cunt, he'd just go, yeah, so. But if you say that to Noel, it would like stir something up deep inside him because I think deep, deep inside, he never reconciled with his upbringing or his with his environment as as much as his brother probably did. Yeah, it's interesting to look at the divergent political paths the two of them have taken. Liam, it was reported in the New Statesman, so it's probably bollocks, but they claimed that Liam religiously watches PMQs and cheers Corbyn on. He actually denied this, I think, but he did say that he did vote Labour. He just didn't really know much about Corbyn or anything. Something about he didn't get him or something? I don't know. Yeah, so it seems that Liam has a kind of uh, an almost tribal attachment to the Labour Party, whereas Noel does not want to be bound by the fact that he comes from a working-class Labour voting family. He thinks Corbyn's a communist, doesn't he? Yeah, that was his his enemy, yeah. Yeah, his famous quote, fuck Corbyn, he's a communist, which means something different. To you and I than it does to Noel. (laughs) 
Oh, Noel doesn't like Trump, though, it says. Oh, Noel doesn't like what? Trump. Well, nobody likes Trump. Yeah. <laughs> not really, like, bold of him to come he out and say that, to be honest. He wasn't going to get much backlash. No, it's like Rick, Ricky Gervais says he doesn't like Trump. And, it, you know, it's like... That's most... not saying much. Yeah, exactly. Most people don't fucking like Trump, really. Um you don't like Trump is saying... I put my shoe on left foot and then right foot. It's like, <laughs> yeah, well, it's it's kind of a default opinion in the UK to um, to not like Trump. I mean, who who likes Trump in the UK apart from you know a vast swathe of the Conservative Party's support base? Um, <laughs> I, 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 I think the interesting question is: Would Noel support Trump on this kind of he speaks to the legitimate concerns of a white working class basis? Were he an American musician? And obviously, it's very, very hard to think of Oasis and imagine them attaining the kind of success they did. Were they an American band? So maybe it's just a hypothetical too far. If he were an American musician thinking that Trump speaks to the concerns of the white working class in the way that, say, he obviously thinks Corbyn doesn't. Well, I think it's weird because being a white working class musician, genres of music work so different in America than they do here. Mm. So something like Britpop wouldn't really have happened in America. Yeah. Because mm. American working class music is very, very set and defined. And there's very little room for new genres to really pop out in America. You are either pop or you are country or you are R&B mm. or you are soul or you're blues. And sometimes you can cross over from one of those genres, but you can't invent your own genre. What rock and roll really did, to go back to my theory, what the Beatles did was introduce <laughs> a new vein of guitar-based music that hadn't really existed in this country previously. I mean... If you read Keith Richards' autobiography, I think it's called Life. By the way, it's possibly one of the best music autobiographies that I've read. And I've read quite a few of them. Like, <laughs> Eric Clapton's is fucking boring, and you can tell it was ghostwritten. I but bet. Keith Richards is very methodical, and it is really about the music. And it's, it's like learning about blues whilst learning about Keith Richards' life. Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's really nice in that way because he's, he thinks very kind of technically about songwriting and about the guitar. And that really comes across when he's talking about, for example, in the autobiography, he talks about how he came up with the riff of satisfaction. In a and dream, very, right? Yeah, but in terms of how they got the sound for it, it's like okay. it's a very technical breakdown of how they got the sound, how they recorded the sound. And it was kind of like a couple of takes in a small room and like not even in a proper studio or anything and he's very methodical about how he done it but in his book he talks about how the rolling stones were only ever able to do what they did because they basically imported a sound that nobody was given a chance here because it was music that was being played by black people yeah and what i really appreciate about that is that everyone knows that the birth of rock and roll was just music stolen from the blues and other black musicians and made really popular by white people but the rolling stones were one of the few bands that actually ever voice that and like we go back and forth about music appropriation but I always feel like the Rolling Stones were quite upfront and blatant about the fact that they did not create the sound that they were doing that they at best were doing very good imitations of somebody else's sound which I don't feel like the Beatles were ever particularly honest about the fact that they were doing the exact same thing yeah, yeah. the type of music that the Beatles introduced into the world because they did deviate from what they were copying from of course yeah but that kind of new guitar based music that wasn't blues and wasn't r&b which was kind of burgeoning in it at the time as well for like george benson and stuff 
that carried on and without the Beatles doing that, yeah, we have Oasis. Oasis couldn't exist without the Beatles, definitely, and the Rolling Stones to another certain extent. They're not on the level of the Rolling Stones because they actually write good songs, the Rolling Stones. <laughs> but <laughs> that era of rock and roll created a type of music that would create, amongst other atrocities, Oasis, <laughs> like. <laughs> oh fucking hell! Shouting for girls. Oh <laughs> no, no! Oh god! All of these things can be traced back to the Beatles. There's a kind of homogenous whiteness about the Britpop the scene. Arctic Monkeys. Yeah, and about and about post-Britpop bands like the Arctic Monkeys, as you'd said, and Scouting for Girls. You know, this whole kind of post-Britpop, Brit-indie, Brit-rock, whatever you want to call it. Very, very boring type of landfill indie. That's the best phrase mm-hmm. that's been coined for that type of music. But it's overwhelmingly white, as Jude says. It's got its roots in the Beatles. And I think it's worth thinking about how the overall music aesthetic of Britpop is so kind of detached from the roots of the Beatles and the Stones. Now, those roots are evident in the Stones, who are incredibly openly influenced by black music, but they were watered down quite considerably in the Beatles. And the Britpop attitude to rock and roll comes via the Beatles. So it never had that kind of serious channeling of black music that you found in the Stones music. Yeah, um, you can tell that they don't have any appreciation for it because they don't know that their idols are basically ripping it off. Yeah. Because when Liam Gallagher went into the live lounge and I think he did a cover of Bob Marley, I think he did something <laughs> or yeah. Natural Mystic or something, and it was fucking abysmal. And that could only come from somebody who had never stopped to think of the connection between reggae music, R&B, rock and roll, and blues. Like, he had never stopped to think of the connection between those four genres. So when he went into the studio, because all he's known is copying all these white guitar-based bands from Mm. the 60s, he had no idea what to do with the rhythm. Whereas Keith Richards spends his time when he's not making albums with the Rolling Stones, just pumping out really bad reggae albums like (laughs) i think you've hit on a really important point there jude that Britpop's version of rock was a kind of second-hand rock and roll that came exclusively from the middleman of the white Mm. 60s rock bands who heard blues records and were inspired it didn't have that deeper roots in in blues and r&b and soul and i mean if you listen to the stones exile on main street there's about like four country songs in a row on there, but pretty much everything else is like black styles of music. And somehow that just like didn't make it through to the 90s, just for like jangly guitar pop and the more kind of abrasive I mean, you rock. I forget that the Rolling Stones literally made an entire reggae album that was like, it's like their weakest <laughs> album, but Black and Blue literally <laughs> has a Rolling Stones version of Cherry O Baby, which I think was originally recorded by Neil Diamond, actually but made more famous by UB fucking 40. (laughs) (laughs) Have you heard Luxury, the Stones song from It's Only Rock and Roll, where Mick Jagger sings it in an incredibly broad, cod Jamaican accent? 
It cannot be worse than Cherry O Baby, honestly. <laughs> you listen to Black and Blue, and you listen to you before is Cherry O Baby, and everyone talks about how Ali Campbell has this odd Jamaican accent when he sings. You really need to hear Mick Jagger's on Cherry. <laughs> it's like ten times worse. It's their worst album, but it actually has their best song on it, Crazy Mama, which is the best Rolling Stone song. Do you like Memory Motel, which is on that record? I don't mind it. That's I a like nice. Song. Fall to Cry is a good song. Fall to Cry is a good song. I like Memory Motel because it's a duet between Mick and Keith, and I love it when they sing harmony because it's not as slick as the Beatles harmonies. It's really rough and ready and reminds me but of like you know country that harmonies. Was an altar boy and sang in choir. Well, there you go. I guess that's why it's got a good sense for harmony. Yeah, that's where he learned how to harmonize because he was an altar boy and he sang in choir. Oh, little snippets that you learn in his autobiography called Life available in all good bookstores. <laughs> so I think it's important to stress the lack of formal adventurousness that was inherent to Britpop. It wasn't a particularly musically innovative chapter in British pop music history. And to illustrate I this point... I would just like to clarify that I don't think Britpop is to blame for Brexit, just specifically okay. Oasis. Because, <laughs> because Oasis represent a subgenre of Britpop that was very, very banal. And there are very good Britpop that actually had good messages. And I don't feel like we should conflate the two. So for every Oasis, there was a change. <laughs> I think, though, it is a point worth stressing that, for example, I, I think Suede were a good band and they were more musically adventurous than Oasis were. But again, I think their music was, again, a kind of second-hand rock and roll that was inspired by David Bowie and the Smiths and the mm. whitest bands around. And they also, Brett Anderson said, I find England strange and unique and beautiful. And he would sometimes play Vera Lynn's The White Cliffs of Dover over the PA. Very good song. It's a very good song. Well, no, but, but you see the symbolism there, you know, this kind of old-timey, it's austerity nostalgia. It's what Owen Hathley writes about in the Ministry yeah, of Yeah, yeah, Ministry of the thing about that kind of austerity nostalgia is that it's so prevalent in any working class community to the point that it's prevalent even in multicultural working class communities. And that's something that people don't really know. For example, when I went to primary school, we all had to learn Victorian Cockney songs like Any Old Iron and <laughs> I Live in Trafalgar Square and all of these ragtime <laughs> pub songs, basically, is what they are. Yeah. And those things are... <laughs> Let's all go down the strand. Like, yeah, it's really like no, honestly, like I won't do it now because, like, one, I'm half drunk already. When I start doing my Cockney accent, it sounds really, really funny because um, nobody hears it normally. So when I react to it, people just think I'm putting it on, and then I feel really subconscious about it. So I'm not going to do it. But um, you get loads of like little nine-year-old kids in Islington just going around singing "Any Old Iron," weird, <laughs> or or I'm Henry the <laughs> Eighth. Oh yeah, I know. I remember that one. Henry VIII, I am I. I've never heard that one. Oh, we have far north. How does that in go? Year six. Henry VIII, I am Henry VIII, I am I am. I am. <laughs> in year six, we did That's a music hall thing as our school play so i learned a fair few of those songs and they're all stuck in my head i remember some guy who i proper hated just did awful you ever cut. learn it's, ain't um, gonna leave this house no longer ain't gonna need this house no more 
Like, no, I don't think so. The one I remember the awful cunt singing in year six was uh, was like, even at 10 years old, the awful cunt. The guy was like, what is it? Hello, here comes the galloping major. And it was just like this awful, like, fucking imperialist bunch of trash. Yeah. Like, that wasn't why I disliked it at the time. I just disliked the guy. But in retrospect, imperialist as fuck. It's interesting we talk about primary school songs you sing and stuff and how Jude mentioned the Beatles earlier on. When we used to be brought into the hall to have the lyric projected on the screen to sing the music teacher who was Mr. Bellman. And he used to make us sing Beatles songs, ironically. Uh, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. 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 We, we did Louis Armstrong. <laughs> oh, oh nice. that would so much better. I think just when my little sister was in year one, she came home and she just started singing What a Wonderful World. And I was like... Why? She's like, because we learn it in assembly today. And I was like, okay. When I lived in London until I was 10, I went to a school that was very sort of racially mixed. They did assemblies where they taught us about Nelson Mandela and we all sang free Nelson Mandela and also coming sickly Africa, which I'm probably getting it wrong, but I still remember that stuff. When I moved to Surrey at the age of 10, like it was all, here comes the galloping major. <laughs> Such a contrast going from the people we, yeah. we, we've subjugated to the people who subjugated them. <laughs> we just sang hymns, like all the time. We didn't do anything except from hymns. <laughs> What the fuck? The like song that we had to sing was... Education. You know what we're doing, don't you guys? We're having a moment of autocracy <laughs> reminiscence. Oh, we are back in my day. They used to we make us it. sing my way by the Beatles. Back in, in my, my no, sorry, in my, in my life, sorry. That's it. Yeah, my way isn't by the Beatles. It was in my, it was in my <laughs> life, sorry. In my oh, life. It was, yeah. <laughs> that was it. Sid Vicious, Beatles, same thing. <laughs> but no, I mean, in Joe Kennedy's Authentocrats, which we will be doing a full episode on, but I want to just like plug in this one as well so that more people have bought it by the time we do the episode. He talks about an article by David Camp that was in Vanity Fair in March 1997, and it was called London Swings Again. And uh, on the cover was Liam Gallagher in bed, in a messed up bed with a Union Jack duvet with his girlfriend Patsy Kensett looking kind of post-coital. All of a sudden, Joe says, the British, it's suggested, are intensely relaxed, to quote Peter Mandelson, about their unifying symbol being sexually desecrated, which is very much like, yeah, yes, we have a Union Jack duvet, but we just fucked in it that very like kind of false sense of rebellion it's like you know i kind of think the nationalism slightly overrides staining it with cum but okay <laughs> <laughs> joe goes on to talk about how david camp describes some of the lesser bands of this era camp is obviously mocking when he mentions cooler shaker the awful rich kid pseudo spiritualists who have constructed their entire sound upon the kind of anglo indian fusion only occasionally delved into by george harrison and the grim humorless loyalty of ocean color scene to the small faces cool britannian's ability to use traditionalist symbolism and the aesthetics of the past might present itself as cockily disinterested 
arrested, so the implication goes, too often turns into irony-free conservatism. Mm. So, yeah, I don't think it was the most progressive epoch for British music, certainly. Mm. I think just, a lot I'm of just... the bands of that time, I mean, there was the whole Oasis versus Blur, which I do think was just the music industry just replaying class politics yeah. mm. all over again, because I don't really think Blur and Oasis were particularly targeting the same kind of fans anyway all kind of really even in competition with each other and it might just be because I'm, I'm too young to remember and maybe being nine I think when definitely maybe came out nine or eight I don't remember the rivalry in that way and maybe somebody who was 14 15 at the time would look at it completely differently but I yeah. never looked at the songs and thought these are bands that would appeal to the same people anyway yeah I think Blur songs were kind of operating from a completely different plane I think it's a bit the same with the Beatles and the Rolling Stones as well I think people think that there was a rivalry between the two but they were making music for two completely different fan bases obviously there'd be loads of people who liked both but I don't think they were kind of targeting the same individuals I think they had two very different fan bases who happened to overlap that wasn't a, I, a thing. I feel like at times, although you would kind of see Blur as the more kind of progressive band, be that in terms of their willingness to experiment musically or just kind of the way that the, the members and their attitudes are perceived. But actually, a lot of the stuff that Damon Albarn was saying around the time they released Modern Life is Rubbish was this very parochial stuff. So as Richard Power Said writes in 1997, Blur had toured America and they hated it. And Albarn came back talking about defending the UK from coca colonization, which is this kind of spectacular, like, British victim complex. Like, we're being colonized by America. Well, that's yeah, what yeah. the whole Britpop thing was, wasn't it? Because it, was it was a reaction to, was a, what do they yeah. call it, the, the Americanization of British music or whatever. Yeah. And I think that goes two ways. I think there was a legitimacy to that argument in that we talk about it now, like, in terms of the push for globalization, where the mm. American organization of everything um, mm. which strips local communities or local areas or regions of their own history and everything just kind of gets squashed underneath American discourse and, mm. and that's definitely a complaint that's been made of kind of critical race theory and how dominant it is that the leading voices in critical race tend to be U.S. black Americans. And so when that's imported wholesale over here, it ends up with things like trying to fit issues around racism, like around anti-blackness that were not as prevalent in the UK or just simply didn't happen here. Mm. Um, and so people start confusing small things like when black women in the UK got the vote, things like that, or when black men in the UK got the vote, because the dates that they have and the knowledge that they have isn't actually related to where they live. It's related to somewhere else because that place happens to be the dominant culture. Yeah. Um, so I think there was, there was a legitimacy to that kind of wanting to avoid that kind of poker colonization or whatever he called it is it coca-colonization that's not bad actually <laughs> is that just the same as the theory of mcdonaldization it's just the same thing under a different I, name i think so yeah i 
I think it's just that he actually colonization in there that makes it slightly more politically suspect. But no, it's it's certainly like a point worth making that America does have an awful amount of cultural, economic, military dominance. Like, yeah, fair yeah, like, it's just I'm not, it's like, just, I'm not like criticizing the work of George Ritzer or anything, saying that's <laughs> bullshit. I'm just saying that maybe running with it in the sense that Blur and Oasis did in that specific time period of like 1994, 1995 was maybe a bit suspect. <laughs> yeah, just wanted to go back to the point before. And I think when Blur kind of pushed through, there would have been, what, 25? Mm. It would have been about 25, like 93, 94, 95, 25, 26, 27. If you think about where political discourse was for 25-year-olds, 10 years ago (laughs) (laughs) 5 years ago Mm. I don't expect them to have been as far down the road to political enlightenment as a 25 year old would be in 2018 and that's something that I always look at I think of where the conversation was at that time within different age groups for me to gauge whether people should have had better or worse politics than they did at a certain point in time in history or whatever Yeah. so I think at that time, if you look at what you're being taught and the environment that you're being taught in, I don't really think any of those bands were being exposed to radical voices or writings for them to develop the kind of politics or thinking that would see them not fall into the classic trap of autocracy um, yeah. and that kind of cool Britannia bullshit. And to be fair, I don't really think Blair really brought into the Cold Britannia bullshit as much as Oasis did. I don't really recall many um, Blair performances that had like Union <laughs> Yeah. Alban was actually invited to number 10, but I think he sent Blair a note saying, sorry, Tony, I can't make it as I've decided to become a communist. Um, unfortunately, <laughs> I, don't, I don't think he actually did become a communist, although I do think uh, Damon and Alban is a Labour voter. Really? Really? No, I've I've heard from people that he voted Corbyn. Really? I'm, I'm quite sure. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't. Did you know though that Damon Auburn named his daughter after Missy Elliott? Oh, I did not know about that. <laughs> you did? Okay. Which member of Blur is the melty one that's a councillor now? Which one's oh Dave that? Roundtree? There's so many, there's oh, so many yeah. melty members of Blair. You have to. Be yeah, just fucking Alex James is literally like a cheese farmer. His whole thing now is fucking cheese. He should be. You cannot tell me that Alex James is not a Tory. He's definitely a fucking Tory. He's definitely a Tory. Did he vote Brexit for his cheese farm? (laughs) No, but imagine a podcast of Alex James and Mike Gapes. Cheese milk. (laughs) Just over and over and over again. So, Alex, please, can you now explain how the cheese is made from the cows in various parts of the country? Well, only Sorry, the they... South, because Blue represented the South. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's true. Southern, Southern, I won't say the homophobic slur that Liam used, but they are certainly Southern. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When you put it all together,
I've got the Richard Power Said book open, and there's a couple of things that I thought with relation to this uh, Coca colonization idea, which is, I guess, it's about what you perceive to be American music. Because I'm thinking here of that interview Morrissey did back in 1987 or something, where he went off on this huge tirade about black music. And mm. I think it's possible that certain people who were against American music weren't just reacting to Nirvana, but Michael Jackson or uh, Stevie Wonder or somebody. Although, although there was certainly a bland white Americanized flip side, like such as uh, ultra Blairite Mick Hucknall, who's mentioned yeah. in this book, uh, in contrast to Blair, who had Simply a huge... read that news online. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Mick uh... Hucknall who is from Manchester <laughs> and is like just a fucking disappointment. Mick Cocknell, who blocked me on Twitter. Fuck off. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> I blocked you I both. Think... <laughs> Hucknall was rich before Blair so rather than you know there's certain yeah. people like you know J.K. Rowling they got rich during Blair so they're like it was a time of opportunity Mick yeah. Hucknall the, the fact is that you know he was already fine by the time it happened so none of the disappointments of the new Labour era affected him so it all seemed great to him and he was able to say I don't know what people are complaining about you know the working class have got their political voice back but yeah Richard Power Said writes without Yanks many of them African American, this new genre, rock and roll, could never have existed. It was a second generation influence, but that influence was consistently ignored. If that had been acknowledged, the definitive characteristic of this new scene, its Britishness defined in conventionally white terms, might not have been convincing. It was never suggested that Britishness might be a hybrid of native and migrant. Hmm. I think... Yeah, it's no, it's really good, Jude. You, you'd like it, I think. I think if you look back to the state of music in the early 90s, it was predominantly white. And then there was that big push of New Jack Swing from America that kind of broke the stronghold. And I think because pop, the pop bubble, took hold in the second half of the 90s. And so Britpop was, it was actually dying out right about when pop was really staking a firm hold. Mm. And I think what that kind of break of 90s R&B did was introduce black music in the UK outside of what were known as predominantly black genres of music like jungle and hip hop and stuff like that and kind of thrust them into the mainstream. So suddenly it's weird to think of it now, but in 1996, everybody listened to Tony Braxton. It was just what you did. And Janet Jackson and Michael Jackson and I mean Michael Jackson has always kind of transcended race in, in some ways in his own special way. Um, <laughs> but um, that pop bubble did bring forth an acceptability to listen to black artists in the mainstream that I don't know if we would have had had it come at a different time, especially with what the Lawrence Inquiry and that murder did for regulations in the UK. And it's not perfect, obviously we know that, but I do think it was a seismic moment. 
call British society to stop pretending that the issue of race had been dealt with and that it was just this thing that people kind of discussed on their balconies and on council states that they shared with black people but not really ever took any further than that and suddenly it was something that people were actually being forced to think about. But I think the 90s is such a weird decade in terms of politics, in terms of music, in terms of race relations. And there was just, mm. this, there was a weird amalgamation in 1997. I don't think there's been more prominent deaths in 1997 than there were. I mean, if you think of the three most famous deaths in 1997 would be Biggie Smalls, Janet Archie, and Princess Diana. Mm-hmm. And they mm-hmm. all went within about four months of each other. Yeah, no, no about five months of each other, I think. Biggie was about April, I think. Janet Archie was around April as well, and then Diana was in August. And <laughs> I know it's, it's weird to think that 1997 could be such a pivotal year for so many things in the UK, but it really, mm. tr- it really and truly was. I think Tupac and Biggie dying brought hip-hop into the mainstream more than it might have done had they remained alive, I think. Mm. So that was in 1997, and I guess by that point, Britpop was kind of peaking. Because, yeah, yeah, around sort of dying August. in 1997. Because yeah. by 1997, the Spice Girls had sort of, like, taken control at that point, hadn't they? And... Yeah, this is the thing. So 1997 was the year that Oasis released their long-awaited third album, Yeah, and it was fucking dross. And it was shit, yeah. Cocaine, 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 cocaine. The amount of the cocaine, tons of cocaine. Jesus Christ. <laughs> I, I, I dispute that, but... But the net... Well, I, uh, uh, that's just, like, your opinion, man. <laughs> but, um... <laughs> Come on, mount your defence of it right here, right uh, now. All right, I will do then. All right, that's not what I, that's not what I was going to say. I was going to actually be critical of be here now, but if if I, I must, uh, yeah, go ahead. the hooks are still very very strong. Lyrics obviously garbage, but who the fuck listens to Oasis for lyrics? The big choruses are there. The songs that Oasis for hooks. It doesn't have any hooks. They, that is the one thing they have. They are often stolen hooks, but they are hooks nonetheless. And Noel guitarist, Noel Gallagher knows how to buy power chords and has exhausted them all through four albums of dross. Well, look, I think Be Here Now is just a great record to listen to if you just want to rev yourself up for some. Thing. It's just Liam, you know, it's it's before Noel would start singing two or three songs per album. So you don't have his shit, boring voice. You just got Liam oh, fucking whoa, 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 killing whoa. it. Track <laughs> after track. Yeah, sure, Noel can hit notes better, but that's not really what it's about. You know, like Liam has much more character to his voice and he makes the song sound powerful. Whereas Noel just makes him like a flat fucking var of pisses. I don't know, but it's <laughs> But still, Look, it was I'm, when I'm melodically... Sorry, I'm sorry, you cannot justify the existence of Be Here Now, considering it came out in the same year as Urban Hymns and Exactly, Playing it up against what? Urban Hymns, you just, you fucking, you cannot, you cannot. Did you just, did you just, did you just say Urban Hymns is shite? No, no, not, not you, Laura. Uh, fuck, it's just like, but load of like... Like, the production's as dated as Be Here Now. It sounds so fucking 90s, like, soppy orchestras all over what? it. Like, pseudo-psychedelic... I'm, I'm, I'm out of this call. Unnecessary <laughs> strings. Jude, you I need to come and defend the verb here. Against this. <laughs> I will not hear any slander against the verb. Like, exactly, exactly. Like, sorry, the verb. Vile. 
Right. I'm sorry, Jack, but the verb are better than Oasis. I will defend the. I will defend Oasis, but they're not on what basis? Like they've got every fucking like. Right, right, right. Look, we're not debating whether or not the verb are better than Oasis. What we're saying here is that considering "Be Here Now" came out in 1997, the yeah. same year as Urban Hymns. Yeah. It has no legs to stand on. It, it, it's better than Urban Hymns. It's fuck off! It's better. It's better. It's, better. it's not. It's got I'm more sorry. bangers on it. No, what? What? <laughs> you, what? It's lucky man. Fucking space and time. Sonny, I'm a lucky. That's sucky bitch, bullshit, mate. <laughs> you, lucky man. You need lucky man. Lucky man is one of the best songs of the 1990s. I will lucky honestly. Lucky man is like. I will trash my computer. Sorry. The rolling lucky people. Man. Lucky. Neon wilderness. It's all, all around the, the world wishes it could be. Trucks, trucks, trucks make you out your face again. Now the trucks work, they don't make you worse. I know I'll see the trucks again. Yeah, I know I'll see the trucks again. I know I'm on the trucks again. What about spiritualized ladies and gentlemen with us floating in space? That's a definitive album of 1997. <laughs> From the Actually, British the, rock. The definitive album of 1997 was clearly Hanson's debut album. It was actually the live Neil Young and Crazy Horse double album, Year of the Horse. No, and the... it was Hanson. <laughs> Let's not deny Umbot as like the seminal pop classic that it is. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. I know what By I was saying. Umbot's lyrics are literally on a whole other level to any Oasis song ever written. I'm not defending their lyrics. Can we just stop and Although, say, actually, maybe... ...is a deeper song than Tom Bob Keeping Over. This is the I'm most most we've ever disagreed over anything. This is... Because usually we're pretty... We broadly agree with both. This is... This is brutal. It's so far and above. Oh, my God. Everyone's just turned on Jack here. This is brutal. (laughs) I'll stand up for my prince. No matter what. For his ridiculous defence. ...than Noel Gallagher. (laughs) What is that, dude? Isaac Hansen is a better guitarist than Noel Gallagher. (laughs) <laughs> he was at 16 years today. Whatever this, this yeah sure whatever anyway uh, the point i was trying to make before I, before i had to defend be here now against the barbarian hordes on, on this skype call with me uh, these uncultured philistine swine anyway the point i was just going to make was in response to laura asserting that 1997 was when Britpop started declining i think that's right i think 1996 when oasis played nebworth and stuff that was the real peak be here now it felt like it was going to be the peak the death rattle. Yeah, Pete Doherty <laughs> queuing outside the record store waiting for this amazing record that was going to come out. And then he got to come out and only I like it. Um, <laughs> and then uh, be here now for uh, you know all its bangers uh, for, for the, despite the fact that it's a great record and gets you up in the morning and, and like, like it goes around to the Arctic Monkey, a very inspiring inspiring slice of, of uh, cocaine adult super rich life. It did take the wind out of Britpop. It was its moment of deflation. It was the death that was what I wanted to say. It was the death rattle, yeah. <laughs> but 
It's still a good album. It's not a good album. <laughs> it's a good album. It's a comparatively or on its own, on its own merit. It's shit on both counts. I mean, there was a lot of fucking shit that came out in 1997. And most of it was still better than Be Here. <laughs> I, I, I just think it's a high bar, to be honest. I think I think there's great records that came out that you not all of them up there would be here now. Barbie Girl was a better song than Do You Know What I Mean. <laughs> Do You Know What I Mean isn't one of the best tracks on the record, but it's jams like The Girl in the Dirty Shirt, I Hope I Think I Know, It's that's Getting Better. was a better song than anything that's on Be Here Now. <laughs> Which song, Jude? Dr. Jones by Aqua. I <laughs> agree. I can't speak for that, but what about it's get, getting better, brackets, man, it's getting better, brackets, man, two exclamation marks. Which is just a so that is a classic necessary punctuation. Wait, what, in the first place. What's it a rip-off of, Jude? Basically, it's getting better, man, it's just a rip-off of it's getting better from the Beatles. Like, that's where they got the fucking title from. And it was shit It's there, got a completely different now. melody. It's, it's not the melody, it's the title that was ripped off. Jack, yeah, next time, yeah. Yeah. So, so what? All their what lyrics are from failing, Beatles songs. What you're yes. failing to understand, Jack, is that yeah. Oasis are the winners of the worst <laughs> Beatles pop band. <laughs> <laughs> Jack, next time you come around, you know to mine, we're gonna we're gonna what piss on Enoch Powell's grave? What? No, we'll, 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 do we'll, 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 we'll do that. 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 We'll do why it's a better album than Be Here Now. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, but, you know. It has to be done. I thought you were going to say, until you understand white supremacy. I was like, Tom, God, I can't believe that's why you prefer the verb. A shocking admission live on the air. The other, yeah. other Britpop bands, because because they just did the white supremacism so much better than all the other bands. Uh, <laughs> the thing that's important in Britpop. No, all right. I, I, I think, you know... Be Here Now, great album. We've established that. We've all come to unanimous <laughs> agreement. Yeah. Uh, you're forcing it again. Uh, you're, you're, you're making us toe this line that we do not want to capitulate to. By a three to Typical stylist. I think we've clearly established that Be Here Now is a terrible fucking album. By Fake news. Fake news. <laughs> I'm just imagining the, you as a Donald Trump gift going, wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Sad. <laughs> I, I wanted to ask you, Jude. We've established that Oasis were great, but some little slugs say that they weren't. Um, <laughs> how, 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 how did this fake news about Oasis being bad lead to Brexit? Well, so going back to my theory, <laughs> if you think about all the centrist melts around today, I think about them a lot. They're all about mid forties. Hmm. So if you minus 20, 30 years off them, they were prime Oasis listeners at the height of Britpop. Mm. Yeah. Right? And then if you think about who was having a midlife crisis at the time of Britpop, it's all of the gammon dads. So combined, <laughs> they are responsible for Brexit. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> I am sold. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> all the 
Ireland dads were midlife crisis centrist dads around 94 to 97. And all the midlife crisis centrist dads were Glastonbury mad for it lads in 94 to 97. The two key demographics of Brexit and the two key demographics of Britpop. Just connect so, the dots. <laughs> do you think that by 2016, sorry, I forgot what year we voted to leave the EU. God, time flies. Um, do you think that possibly there was a backlash among the, the... Are you saying that be here now being terrible is what caused Brexit? Possibly, possibly. <laughs> I, I, you know what? I, I think, I think that the honest, purple-faced working man just got absolutely <laughs> sick of the liberal metropolitan elite talking down a classic album that defines the greatest year in our country's history, where the greatest government we've ever had came to power by a wonderful landslide. <laughs> Do you think that maybe the... I need to think of a phrase that is kind of like white working class, but isn't white working class. Do you think, basically, that they had legitimate concerns about a lack of, a lack of musical representation? Because, as Owen Jones writes in Chavs, <laughs> Chav hate has even trickled into the popular music scene. From the Beatles onwards, working class bands once dominated rock and indie music in particular. The Stone Roses... The Smiths, Happy Mondays and The Verb to take a few popular examples. But it is difficult to name any prominent working class bands since the heyday of Oasis in the mid-1990s. It is middle class bands like Coldplay or Keen mm. that now rule the roost in music. Coldplay, what about them? Do you like Coldplay? It's all right. Just okay? It's all right. Cool. They, don't, they, don't, they don't do it for me that much. They're not rock and roll enough, man. Wait, when what, what do we? 2011. This is an updated edition from 2012, but I imagine that. I just need to tell Owen Jones that there's literally not a single person on earth who was listening to Keen post 2006. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody even knows the name of Keen's second album. That's how. No. That's how much they just dropped off the radar. I mean, I don't Nobody. think I know the name of the first. I, I feel like it was called Somewhere Only We Know. Like I feel like. Oh, well, after good... that one song they did, yeah, fair enough. <laughs> I feel like that was a good guess. Hey, wait, 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 hang on. Keen might be shit, but Everything Changes was a better song than Somewhere Only We Know. <laughs> anyway. Uh, uh, but is it a better song than It's Getting Better, Brackets, Man, <laughs> Two Exclamation Marks? Literally every Keen song is a better song than this. <laughs> I love to blast that tune out. Um, every time we try to crawl away to from the controversial that. issue and be here now. You, you don't want me to say in. that Elvis Ain't Dead by Scouting for Girls was a better song then you don't want me to go that far down the line but i will dude, you push me dude i have legitimate concerns about that opinion you just expressed <laughs> <laughs> no but my point is more that like coldplay are a very weird band because they are your quintessentially middle class rock band because mm -hmm. you you look at christ martian and you just think that is a man who grew up in a Tory safe seat. <laughs> Wait, did you just call him Christ Martin? Christ Martian. Yeah. Christ Martian. <laughs> new interpretation of the scripture. Chris Martin, also known as Christ Martian. I don't think I've called him Chris Martin for about eight years now. I just call him Christ, I just call him Christ Martian. It's, it's fine. <laughs> but having what? Two degrees of separation from Chris Martin. Well, maybe one degree of separation, actually. Anyway, politically, they're kind of very 
soft left without being melts, if you can put it that way. If you ask them, they would give you very soft left responses, but they're not particularly gung ho soft left kind of in like the Lisa and Andy kind of way about it. <laughs> That makes any sense. Uh, so I feel like sometimes I feel like sometimes they they get a bad rap because of the fact that they are very middle class and they're not trying to disguise that in any way, shape, or form. Mm. But I don't think that transcends into anything that they put out. I don't think their music has particularly ever really been anti working class at all. Mm. Uh, yeah, well, it's that, not really about much, is it? Yeah, their their music isn't really. It's not polit- It's not politics based anyway. So I don't think they tap into that conversation as much as other bands would have. And again, um, neither is Oasis music. I'm not sure. I suppose the the first album is a lot about the misery of working class life. Yeah. Yeah. But after definitely maybe, there's not really much that could be construed as political in Oasis's lyrics. I'm trying to think if Noel's written anything recently where he's tried to say anything. Oh, no, it was that Liam song. Sorry, no, what were you saying? Noel doesn't have anything to say, so that would mm. just be a no which, like, from which, the get-go. Yeah, which doesn't stop him, does it? Like, in, in his interviews. <laughs> he's never let not having anything to say get in the way of saying things. Um, I but like I was thinking... World Away was probably the closest he got to tapping into anything remotely politically worth saying. Do you think, what's that the thing, closest, The closest that they got to having good lyrics that actually had some kind of meaning that could be conferred onto somebody's life mm. was half a, life, half a world away. Okay. Um, and I, think I suppose in part, that song got given more political reason because of its association with the royal family. Yeah, so you but, definitely see that as being about the drudgery of working class life or as something like rock well, and roll star or cigarettes. It's not a song with I would like to leave the city, this old town don't smell as pretty. And, pretty, and yeah. I feel like that really kind of does tap into the fact that he was always trying to move away from where he came from. Yeah. Mm. yeah. And in fact, something like Rock and Roll Star is all about escaping that city. In fact, the first line is, I live my life in the city. There ain't no easy way out. And again, it's all it's a little bit of a Blairite kind of attitude because it, it's that aspirational working class thing. Not that you can fucking begrudge him at all, because, um, you know, the Gallagher brothers did actually have a very and the rest of the band had a very deprived upbringing. But yeah. it fits very neatly into the Blairite attitude of aspiration. Yeah, I, um, I wonder if you just if you do enough cocaine, you just become Tory. <laughs> It is a very Tory drug, isn't it? It is, isn't it? Mm, yeah. <laughs> Whereas if you smoke lots of weed, you become a legend. <laughs> well, in that case, what went wrong with the Beatles? Because the only one of them that was ever a legend was George Harrison. But and he Ringo. Don't send me any fun mail. I am warning you with peace and love. <laughs> Have you ever seen the interview on, I think it was Parkinson in the 80s, I think you can find it on YouTube, where it's Ringo Starr and George Harrison on Parkinson, I think, at the same time. Yeah. And Ringo Starr is obviously fucking bladdered. (laughs) And they're talking about some time they were on tour, and I'm pretty sure that George Harrison fucks his wife, basically. (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, apparently that's just what they that's did amazing. when they were all on drugs. Holy like, shit. Just each other's lives. I liked an interview I saw with Ringo where he was talking about when Bob Dylan introduced the Beatles to weed, which shows how fucking square Britain was in the <laughs> early 1960s, but they had to go to America and meet another rock star to get introduced to weed. But Ringo is just like, we laughed and laughed. <laughs> <laughs> I had so much fun. Ringo response. <laughs> Ringo, of course, who later went on to uh, be the narrator of Thomas the Tank Engine. <laughs> in an incredibly downbeat, disciplinarian kind of manner. Thomas, you've been a very disobedient engine. Fire and smoke, said Thomas. I am sunk. And he was. Oh dear, he said, I am a silly engine. And a very naughty one too. I saw you, said the fat controller. Please get me out, I won't be naughty again. But I think my favourite Beatles anecdote is in Keith Richards' autobiography, he talks about, he goes on a drug bender and John Lennon decides that he wants to tag along and do some drugs with him and you know Keith Richards is a medical marvel he should be dead by right yeah. like, that man is about 80% heroin and about 15% cocaine maybe that's <laughs> who knows but they go on this drug vendor and they're taking speedballs which is speed and cocaine mixed which is like you don't want to it. It is, I thought speedball like, was heroin and coke yeah, heroin. Sorry, I don't actually know how any of the people who were taking drugs in the seventies are still alive. Like, it's not surprising <laughs> that so many of them died. David Crosby would like constantly set himself on fire because he smoked so yeah, much crack. They, they, do, they, they would do speedballs and then they do K-Lubes and it's like, what? <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> It's funny you mentioned this because I was speaking to Jack the other night on the phone and of course the topic turned to fucking Neil Young and I asked I asked for a sort of summary of the band makeup of Crazy Horse Yeah. over the years and it was basically just Jack telling me about the lineup of Crazy Horse and how they were all dying from drugs and stuff. And I was <laughs> like, oh, this, 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 this is a running trend. And it's like, and then I think Jack said you said something along the lines of, well, it was the seventies, you know, things got real. <laughs> <laughs> Because in the 60s, they were all like, yeah, drugs, this is sick. And then in the seven, by the 70s, everyone was dying from them. They were like, man, turns out there's a dark side to this drug stuff. Um, but yeah, David Crosby was uh, my close personal friend, David Crosby, who I was conversing with on Twitter the other day. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it turns out that he's fallen out with Stephen Stills as well as Graham Nash and Neil Young. Yeah, he, he was addicted to freebase cocaine, which was like the predecessor of crack and he'd smoke it with blowtorch and that was why he'd always be setting himself on fire and yeah i think one time he set himself on fire and he and uh the police came and he got arrested and he had to go to prison <laughs> and then uh, that's where he got clean so going back to the keith richards story yes, so john, lennon, john lennon comes to do some drugs with him and like basically gives up <laughs> 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 Len Lennon's just like oh, I've got a headache I want a cup of tea I think, he, think he finds him in like the toilet like just slumped over and he's just like no I can't do it and he or he give up <laughs> just like leave and he's like he wasn't hardcore enough to do drugs with me just on, on on the phone like crying to Yoko Ooh. like I want to go home <laughs> I don't like this <laughs> 
that book is really good though like if you just want to have a laugh at like a bunch of weird things like he goes into how brian jones was like the most sadistic member of the rolling stones and he had a mate who he'd met doing national service and he like they went to a cafe and he made his mate buy them all a fry up or something and then it was like snowing and it was freezing in london and he made his friend go and stand outside without a coat in the snow for like an hour and told him he could come in until he told him to come in and keith was just like uh hi he just had this really sadistic nasty fucking streak but they they loved him for it because like every other time he'd just be like good as gold and be like the nicest member of the band but then every so often he'd go really dark my twitter account used to be called uber coca and that was named after a hip-hop track i made to help (laughs) (laughs) yes to help i'm 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 a a musical adventurer (laughs) i i in all the all the genres uh and um apart from pop punk i fucking hate that shite um but but basically it was just a song like like i uh where i was just like rapping about cocaine and it was to promote a short story i wrote for a short story collection me and yaya had to do for our course where i wrote this story called uber coca about like a mad scientist in victoria times who take a working class man from a workhouse and just get him fucked on cocaine while he performed mad experiments on him uh, all all fiction but uh, but no basically just this rap track has like a line like uh, i'm higher than the motherfucking rolling stones don't let me near a pool or i'll be brian jones oh, <laughs> oh, wow. I, found, I found a quote from the book on the john lennon thing and i really want to read it out because it's just fucking funny it's like Here we it says, go. i got to know i got to know john lennon longer and better further down the line we'd hang for quite a while he and yoko would pop by But the thing was with John, for all his vaunted bravado, he couldn't really keep up. He'd try and take anything I took, but without my good training. A little bit of this, a little bit of that, a couple of downers, a couple of uppers, coke and smack, and then I'm going to work. I was freewheeling, and John would inevitably end up in my John, hugging the porcelain, and there'd be Yoko in the background. He really shouldn't be doing this. And I'd go, I know, but I didn't force him. But he'd always come back for more, wherever we were. <laughs> Fucking hell. What a melt. Just couldn't, couldn't take it. Couldn't keep up. And he goes on, I remember one night in the Plaza Hotel, he came by to my room, and then he disappeared from the room. I'm talking to the chicks, and their mates are all saying, I wonder where John went. And I go to the John, and there he is, hugging the parquet on the tiles. Too much red <laughs> wine and some smack. Technically... <laughs> Don't move me. These tiles are beautiful. His face a ghastly green. <laughs> I love that. Like too much red wine and some smack. <laughs> Sometimes I thought, are these guys just coming to see me, or is there some sort of race on that I don't know about? I don't think John ever left my house except horizontally, or definitely propped up. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine trying to keep up. Richard, so it'd be fucking impossible. I was just thinking about how uh, John Lennon's diss track to Paul McCartney after the Beatles split up is just so extreme. It's called How Do You Sleep? Which is like, I mean, like, you know, your band broke up. He didn't actually, like, do anything, like, but would really affect his conscience, I don't think. And the thing that's, like, incredibly petty about the John Lennon diss track to Paul McCartney is that George Harrison plays lead guitar on it. (laughs) (laughs) 
And yeah, it's it's, re- it's a really cruel song, actually. I, I think it's one of the better tracks on Imagine. But yeah, like John Lennon's solo stuff is is not yeah not good at all, really. For, uh, Except you know. for Genesis. There's the odd tune on the first two albums he did that is actually actually his first album is an interesting kind of experiment because it's so like emotionally raw. But yeah, like you know, we could talk about like a thing I was thinking about Britpop was that it was a slightly more kind of like naive time in a way, and that somebody like John Lennon could be embraced as this kind of secular saint, despite having beaten up his first wife and pissed on nuns in Berlin out of a window and just done a lot of kind of like horrible yeah. things. But, but... Like, to be, be fair, that God. that kind of applies to all of the musicians from the sixties and seventies, because like. Yeah. Like, None of them are particularly naughty. Bowie with his Nazi period. I mean, they're also his pedophile period. They either had a Nazi period or a nonce period. And that's like... (laughs) Both. Some of them had both. Bowie literally had both. (laughs) Yes. It's one of those things. And I think sometimes when you look at it from now, people always say, oh, you know, it was of that time isn't an excuse. But the fact that that kind of behaviour was so readily accepted in society at the time is specifically why they were able to build such huge careers and have yeah. no, there, there was no repercussions to be had for yeah. them because it was just an accepted thing that was happening at the time in society, in the industry, and people weren't particularly outraged about it. It's the same with Roman Polanski. If Roman Polanski had done <laughs> what he did 25 years on, then he would have a lot more uproar about it. He'd probably be on the level of uproar that Woody Allen gets, but he mm. actually gets less than Woody Allen because of the time that it was happening. People just seem to have just accepted that 14-year-old groupie were having sex with 21 year old men and 21 25 year old men and people just thought nothing of it yeah any band you think of has at least one nonce in it (laughs) (laughs) now i'd please please take that out (laughs) i don't want to get i don't want to get done for libel (laughs) yeah i'm just gonna be like that was just probably not a good time to start naming names (laughs) i was like I almost said, so dude, who in Oasis is it? Every band from like the 60s and 70s. Like, I won't okay. name any from now, except there are some, like the Lost Prophets. <laughs> yeah, 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 I think that's oh, in the That one we can <laughs> name because he's been convicted. Of yeah, he's, he's in prison. prison. <laughs> Do us Ian Watkins, come on, try it, <laughs> motherfucker. Poor hate uh, from sex, having to share a name with a <laughs> Yeah. I mean, now we've just come on to noncing. Maybe we should probably wrap this up. No, 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 no. We need to go back from noncing to race war because we forgot to talk about fucking Charles Manson and Helter Skelter when Jude was talking about how bad the Beatles were. Again, like, can you blame the Beatles for as yeah. as can you blame them for <laughs> man appropriating that song? Okay, yes. make yes. the case for it. If they don't write it, then he can't appropriate it. Wait, would what? Charles Manson have killed those people? If they don't write the song, then what can he appropriate? If the song doesn't exist, he can't appropriate it. Okay, that does make sense. But what about Helter Skelter? Was it that you think was so right for appropriation? Wasn't it that he was obsessed with? It was the White Album. Yeah, it's probably just that they did see... the White Album. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you're gonna have a race war, you probably are gonna name it after the White Album. (laughs) (laughs) Not just the White Album, because there's some references to the Magical Mystery Tour and Abbey Road. So what we're saying is, 
Did the Beatles inspire Charles Manson? Yes. I concur. <laughs> well, I look forward to Quentin Tarantino's nuanced analysis of, of uh, this issue in his forthcoming film, Once Upon oh a Time. What is he doing the Manson movie? Is Leo DiCaprio playing Charles Manson? He's in it. I don't know who's he's in playing. it. Oh, okay. What have we learned? Yeah, I'm going to get up a quote from Noel Gallagher to close oh, no. on. But what have we learned today? Verve are better than Oasis. That's what we've yes. one of the most important. Fake news, sad. Be here now, terrible shit album. <laughs> Oasis did Brexit. What? The Beatles did Manson. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they did it. The Beatles they did Manson. <laughs> arrest Paul and Ringo for murder. Yes. Uh, yes. I would just right. like to I... end with a few lyrics from that <laughs> other terribly 90s band, Travis. Okay. Um, <laughs> their seminal hit, Writing to Reach You, the lyrics of which say, Every day I wake up and it's Sunday. Whatever's in my eye won't go away. The radio is playing all the usual. And what's the Wonderwall anyway? <laughs> Wonderwall is actually the name of a George Harrison album. But they turned it into gibberish. <gasps> no! And we have to see, we're actually going to end the episode with a single on the Wonderwall. Oh no, oh no. Oh my God. It's descended into this. Eviscerated half of our fucking fan base. <laughs> right, so that's a musical quote from Noel Gallagher. Furthermore, <laughs> which also, actually a double quote, because that's also the riff to Do You Know What I Mean? But to conclude on a quote from Noel Gallagher, the man, he said, this was in November 1996, there are seven people in here, the Brit Awards, who are giving hope to the young people of this country. Me, our kid, Gwigsy, Bonehead, Alan White, who is their drummer, Alan McGee, the boss of Creation Records, and dot, 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 Tony Blair. <laughs> oh, God. And to end on a quote by the better Gallagher, Liam. Noel is a Tory boy and a corporate gobshite. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. See you, Thanks, Liam. And again, Liam Gallagher, come on Real Politic. Hell yeah. Noel, despite as writing great albums such as Be Here Now, great no, songs no, such as It's no. Getting Better, Packet Man, Thank two exclamation marks. Noel, don't come on Real Politic. I'm glad that we've had this episode because for too long we've been accused of being an echo chamber of agreeing with each other, but finally people get to hear how there's been a bit of a debate and disagreement for once on the real policy we yeah. do have differing opinions on some stuff and Tom, that I being think that... you might need to check on Jack's authenticrat tendencies to pretend <laughs> that the public aren't speaking out about something and continue <laughs> with his own agenda are you saying that I haven't listened to the legitimate concerns of my fellow co-hosts and guests. Is that what you're saying? Jack yes, is actually engaging in some Adam Curtis style, like hyper normalization where he's created this narrative around the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> this is not a pro oasis podcast, ladies and gentlemen and friends. You, you love oasis, Laura. Stop lying. You, you, I'm fed up. I'm fed up with this, this, this phony fakery, this 
subterfuge and chicanery. And I'm just not quoting Tim Farron. That the only album my boyfriend has in his car is definitely maybe. It is not my fault. <laughs> you love them. You watched Supersonic and sent me and Tom videos of you enjoying it and singing along. During the election, you were a horrible boyfriend. Provingly, you were approvingly quote tweeting Liam. You're a fan. You're an Oasis fan. Once the truth out, you'll feel a lot better. No. And would Tom, you say that, would you? Oh, go ahead. Sorry, you go fucking on. traitor! Look, Cheers, mate. <laughs> look what you've done! I expect the man who went to see Liam Gallagher. I expect you yes. to have my back in yes. this, but instead you snaked me the same as these other metropolitan. Snaked you like Noel snaked Liam. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like Noel snaked the Labour Party. <laughs> Terrible. Terrible. It's terrible. Would you say that Acquiesce is the most left-leaning of the Oasis songs? What well, the, the chorus is, because we need because each other. Because we need each other. believe in one another. <laughs> yeah, so basically, like, full Brexit now. Enoch had it right. Send them back. <laughs> Be here now. Fantastic album. Uh, oh, my no. God. Okay. Okay. Enoch was right thing that you said before. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'll take away the Enoch had it right and the send them back bits, but I stand by the full Brexit. Be here now is a great album. <laughs> oh, dear God. Oh, dear God. Well, we are truly living in the time of fake news. Yeah. <laughs> that is real so, politics yeah. ladies and gentlemen there you go jude we can't wait to get you back on for yeah. our united passions episode which yeah. will be an absolute blast we're gonna talk about some of the footy and oh. i know jack will yeah well, i'm sure that. Be great. you'll love you'll love the film discussion at least he'll be reading up on football jack watch fever pitch and right. when Saturday comes, <laughs> and you'll probably understand everything about football. No, watch can read. I can read Joe Kennedy's football book. Yes, and oh, also yeah. watch Gold, just because it's watch, funny. Um, watch A Shot at Glory with Robert Duvall and Ali McCoist. Truly, yes, truly one of the great also, football yes, films. Watch All right, then. The England Manager. Oh. <laughs> Robert it Duval is, is, is a lifelong Republican who also really loves Ken Loach. No, 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 you're not. No, I'm not listening to that. Sorry, I didn't hear that. No, didn't hear that. Robert Duval, big Republican. Wait, when you say Republican, what sense do you mean, like British Republican? Has Jude oh. just hung up? <laughs> She's. <laughs> I think I think the United Passions episode is off the table now. But... I, I, I mean, Jack has just completely ruined all of our public relations. Well done, Jack. Laura, American Republican. He is a supporter of the Republican Party. Ugh, too much fake news. <laughs> Do you not milkshake Duck Robert Duvall. <laughs> <laughs> Well, guys, welcome back. <laughs> Season four is up and running. Uh, if you're still with us after this episode, thank you for sticking with us. We will never talk about Oasis ever again. Be here now, great album. <laughs> <laughs> and when I do get Jack around to listen to Urban Hymns, we will record it so I can get his reactions and you know, <laughs> show, his, show, his, con- show, his, show his conversion audio. live in audio form. I feel like we're going to have to go and stay in a shack in the woods for a weekend. Hot <laughs> Yeah. Jack and like force him to listen to it over and over again. No, Jack, it, Jack, you have to understand so why you're wrong. You have weed. to keep listening. To as long as we take weed, fine. I said hot box. I'm not gonna hot box you with. Crack. <laughs> 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 <laughs>
<laughs> or crack and tack. Like, I know what you fucking shorties Well, Damrad, it's been a pleasure as always. It has been a big pleasure. It big. has been something. We'll be back. <laughs> we'll be back with more, with more shenanigans, more guests, more talking points, more seeing off of centrists. Yep. Yep. Fucking yep. Hell. Exactly, Tom. You agreed with me there. Be here now is great. Out. Hey. Okay. Can I just say? Can I just say? No. Okay. Can be here now. I like right. Stand by Me, but most of it is just incomprehensible shite. Like, Stand by I'm me sorry. is one of the weaker tracks. Stand by me, me nobody knows the way it's gonna be. No, there's better tracks than Stand by me on there for sure. But you're here, but you're like, on here live defending the fucking bracket song. Well, for a start, it's, it's not it's not live. Punctuation. It's not live. This will go out after the fact. So if I regretted my okay. opinions on Oasis, which I don't be, and I won't, then I, I could remove them. But I certainly won't be because they're facts. You heard it here first. Let's... Jack likes to take editorial control over the final cut. He'll be leaving all our fuckings in, but he'll be taking out any sort of brutal attack on his defence of be here now. Yeah. Very sad, and now tragic. we actually Very have sad. to end this episode with a sing-along to like cigarettes and alcohol or something get the guitar out <laughs> 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 wait alright <laughs> ladies and gentlemen let's do it oh shit I've remembered it nice when, when do I start singing <laughs> oh. I think in a minute is it my because of the delay this is hilarious like yeah i was looking, looking for, for some action, action. but all i found Sing along live on Real Politics. Maybe the last, but you Walking rock yeah. and roll. <laughs> That's what podcasting is. It's rock and roll. It's yeah. It's, it's the most rock and roll podcast. And downs. It's a uh, wanking caffeine and oasis. Yeah. Good. Good. <laughs> I think the one thing we've learned this episode is that we're the most rock and roll podcast, including podcasts that are actually about rock and roll. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. We're just rock and roll stars. Oh, that's the wrong bit. Uh, never mind. Tonight, I am a rock and roll star. Bye, night, everyone. Bye. Bye. Have a good one, folks. Take care. Season four. Be here now. Great album.
It's exciting, it's young people, it's crowdsourcing.